In his preface, Ben Witherington III reflects on the enduring scholarly fascination with the Epistle to the Romans, as illustrated by the Society of Biblical Literature's seminar, Romans Through History and Cultures. This seminar, showcasing Romans from diverse perspectives, demonstrated the potential for fresh insights into this deeply studied biblical text. Witherington sets out with the goal of offering a socio-rhetorical commentary on Romans, a task he feels has not yet been undertaken comprehensively, with the hope of shedding new light on the epistle. Witherington brings attention to a historical gap in Romans' exegesis that has largely been shaped by the theological traditions following Augustine, Luther and Calvin, which have been predominant since the English Reformation. This focus has led to an overarching Reformed interpretation that has even permeated Catholic exegesis post-Vatican II, largely influenced by theologian Karl Barth's Roma Brief. Witherington notes that while Reformed readings have been instrumental in the study of Romans, they have left Arminian and Wesleyan interpretations underexplored. Witherington's work does not aim to be a definitive interpretation or to conform to Wesleyan theology. Instead, he insists that exegesis must come before theological preconceptions. He challenges widely accepted interpretations within the Reformed tradition, offering alternative readings. For example, he argues that Romans 7 should not be read as Paul's autobiography, but understood through the literary technique of impersonation. Also, he contests deterministic readings of Romans 8.11, proposing that Paul's discussion on the salvation of Israel should be read in light of early Jewish thought, emphasizing both divine sovereignty and human freedom. Despite his primary focus on social and rhetorical analysis, Witherington recognizes that theological and ethical dimensions are inextricably linked with exegetical analysis, especially given the weight of Romans in theological debate. As a result, he delves into these issues thoroughly, urging readers to consider Paul's message on its own merit and not solely through the lens of later interpretations. Expressing gratitude for the profound influence of his teachers, C.K. Barrett, C.E.B. Cranfield, and J.D.G. Dunn from the University of Durham-Witherington, draws a parallel between the construction of Durham Cathedral, a magnificent edifice built with dedication over decades, and his own scholarly commitment to constructing a comprehensive commentary on the formidable text of Romans. Completed in Easter 2003, this preface situates Witherington's commentary as an attempt to contribute a fresh and substantial edifice to the vast landscape of Pauline scholarship. Moreover, Witherington III and Hyatt offer a nuanced perspective on the study of Romans, accentuating its distinctiveness within Pauline literature. They contend against simplifying or depersonalizing the text, cautioning that it's not just a generalized treatise on Paul's theology, but a specific contextual letter. The uniqueness stems partly from its audience, primarily non-converts to Paul's ministry, which necessitates a different rhetorical approach. Unlike his other letters where Paul could exercise inherent authority over his converts, in Romans, he had to strategically build rapport and establish his authority with the Roman Christians. The authors stress the importance of a holistic understanding of Romans, advising against overly focusing on specific controversial sections, such as Romans 7, 
or assuming that understanding a part equates to grasping the whole. They critique interpretations that disproportionately affirm early chapters at the expense of the latter, debating that such readings miss the cohesive, argumentative structure and the letter's full rhetorical and theological intent. Witherington and Hyatt assert Roman's dual focus on theology and practical living, ethics and praxis. They highlight that righteousness in Romans, dikaiosine, has been broadly misunderstood, encompassing not only divine righteousness, but also human righteousness stemming from God's salvific actions. The letter aims to establish a constructive relationship between Paul and the Roman congregation, indicating his apostolic responsibility towards them. Importantly, the authors clarify that Romans should not be read as an anti-Semitic text or as implying God's rejection of the Jewish people. They dispute that the letter's rhetoric is not primarily forensic and that Paul actively defends his Jewish heritage, Jewish Christians and non-Christian Jews in certain sections. Recognizing the letter's intricate rhetorical structure and Paul's deliberate linguistic choices is crucial for understanding its comprehensive message on theology, ethics, and community relations. Furthermore, Witherington III and Hyatt dive into the complexities surrounding the authorship and textual integrity of the Epistle to the Romans, with a particular focus on the controversies of Chapter 16. They confirm Paul as the author, but maintain debates about the chapter's originality in the context of the letter to the Roman Christians, noting how these uncertainties influence interpretations of the letter's purpose and audience. The central issue revolves around the placement of the doxology, Romans 16.25-27, which varies across manuscripts, found at the end of chapters 14, 15, or 16 in multiple locations or omitted entirely. This inconsistency fuels speculation on the original structure of Romans. Did it end after chapter 14, 15, or did it include all or parts of chapter 16? There's even a theory suggesting chapter 16 was initially a separate letter, possibly directed to Pauline converts in Ephesus, a theory arising from Paul's seemingly extensive knowledge of Roman Christians, despite not having previously visited or corresponded with them. Witherington and Hyatt scrutinized the textual evidence, particularly noting Marcion's influence in truncating Romans at 1423 and inserting the doxology, aligning with his critical stance against the Old Testament and Jewish roots of Christianity. Contrarily, strong evidence from early and reliable sources suggests the letter didn't originally conclude at chapter 14. Employing fundamental principles of text criticism, preferring the more difficult reading, choosing the reading that best explains others, and acknowledging duplication as indicative of textual placement uncertainty, they hypothesize the original document spanned from 1, 1.16.23. Marcion likely shortened this and appended the doxology found at 1625.27, leaving open the possibility of it being a non-Pauline edition, a displaced Pauline fragment, or the authentic conclusion to Romans. Referencing H. Gamble's study, Witherington and Hyatt contend for the inclusion of Chapter 16, pointing out its role in demonstrating Paul's deep connections in Rome and his tactful handling of specific local issues. This understanding is crucial to appreciate Paul's rhetorical adeptness and his intimate awareness of the circumstances in Rome around AD 56-57, ensuring a comprehensive and accurate interpretation of the letter.
In addition, Witherington III and Hyatt critically examined the textual integrity and purpose of Romans 16, 123 within Paul's epistle. They addressed the hypothesis that this segment might have been initially intended for Ephesus, contrasting it with Paul's typical approach of minimal personal greetings in his letters to well-known churches. Instead, they suggest that in Romans, Paul strategically uses personal greetings to build credibility and rapport with the Roman congregation, a community he hasn't yet visited. This tactic not only enhances Paul's honor among the Roman Christians, but also establishes a foundation for his anticipated mission in the West. The historical backdrop of Jewish Christians' expulsion and subsequent return to Rome under Emperor Claudius is pivotal in understanding the letter's context. Romans, likely penned between 55-57 AD, addresses a predominantly Gentile church. Paul's deliberate mention of Jewish Christians in the greetings aims to reintegrate them into the church's leadership hierarchy, reflecting a calculated move to mend the rift between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Central to Paul's epistle is the aspiration to garner support for his Western mission and to advocate for a harmonious Christian community, transcending ethnic divides. This unity is essential not just for the church's internal cohesion, but also for embodying the theological principle of unity in Christ, a theme that resonates deeply in Paul's teachings. Regarding the textual structure, Witherington and Hyatt engage with scholarly debates on whether Romans 16 was originally a separate entity or an integral part of the letter. They debate persuasively that the content and rhetorical strategies of Romans 15 and 16 are interdependent, reiterating the unity of the text. The chapter serves multiple functions. It's a testament to Paul's network and influence, a tool for integrating diverse church members, and a critical piece in the larger theological and rhetorical framework of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Further, the dating of Paul's letter to the Romans can be discerned through a meticulous examination of various chronological clues within the text and its historical context. A pivotal reference within the letter is Paul's mention of the collection he was taking to Jerusalem, Romans 15.23.28. This reference is crucial as it indicates that Romans was composed after Paul's letters to the Corinthians as the collection was a subject discussed in those correspondences. Another significant clue lies in Romans 16. 1. Where Phoebe of Sencrii, the port of Corinth, is noted to be the bearer of the letter to Rome. This mention not only suggests a Corinthian origin of the letter, but also establishes a tangible link between the letter and its courier. Besides, this link is reinforced by the greeting from Gaius in Romans 16.23. Given that Gaius is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.14, it's probable that this is the same individual, strengthening the argument for a Corinthian origin of the letter. The Acts of the Apostles provides additional chronological insights. References in Acts 15.25 and 20, 2 FF, suggest a period of relative stability and reflection for Paul, allowing him the opportunity to deeply contemplate his gospel. This period of reflection is evidenced in the text of Romans itself, with its theological richness and its echoes of themes and teachings from Paul's earlier letters, notably Galatians and Corinthians. Additionally, Paul's depiction of his ministry in the eastern part of the Roman Empire as being concluded, 
provides a further clue to the timing of the letter's composition. The most convincing period for this composition aligns with Paul's three-month winter stay in Corinth, a stay that occurred just prior to his journey to Jerusalem in the spring of 57. This time frame not only fits with the internal evidence from the letter and the logistical details it entails, but also harmonizes with the broader narrative of Paul's missionary work, as depicted in the Acts of the Apostles, thereby providing a cohesive and comprehensive understanding of the context and timing of the letter to the Romans. Also, Witherington III and Darlene Hyatt dig into the question of whom Paul was addressing in his letter. The primary recipients, they affirm, were believers in Jesus residing in Rome. However, the demographic composition of these believers, whether mainly Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians, or a mix of both, remains a subject of scholarly debate. Witherington III and Hyatt dispute that there is insufficient evidence to suggest a unified church presence in Rome overseen by an apostolic figure like Peter, who is notably absent from any mention in the epistle. Instead, the reference to individual house churches hints at a more fragmented Christian community. Paul's rhetoric throughout the letter often singles out Gentiles, using phrases such as among the other Gentile peoples, 113, and to you Gentiles, 1113, which points to a predominantly Gentile audience. These assertions, alongside Paul's discourse on the Jews' place in salvation history, appear tailored to a Gentile readership, thus supporting the notion that they are the main focus of the letter. Despite this Gentile-centric approach, evidence such as Paul's reliance on the Septuagint for scriptural arguments and specific greetings to Jewish individuals suggests that Jewish Christians were part of the audience. Moreover, some of the Gentile Christians likely had prior involvement with synagogues as God-fearers, non-Jewish individuals who followed certain Jewish religious practices without full conversion to Judaism. While Paul's primary mission was to the Gentiles, his correspondence also served as an open letter for Jewish Christians to glean insights. His objective was not only to admonish and instruct Gentile Christians, but also to articulate a unified Christian responsibility and God's non-discriminatory justice and mercy to all, regardless of ethnic background. While identifying a predominantly Gentile audience provides a glimpse into the composition of early Roman Christianity, it leaves broader questions about the social dynamics and structure of the Christian community in Rome unanswered. Witherington III and Hyatt repeat the necessity to recognize this diversity within the audience, reflecting the multifaceted nature of early Christian communities. Furthermore, Witherington III and Hyatt's analysis of the early Christian communities in Rome, as presented in the Book of Romans, reveals a complex social structure indicative of a diversified yet fragmented religious group. According to their interpretation of Romans 16, at least five individual house churches are identified, each hosted by patrons with sufficient means to accommodate such gatherings beyond modest living quarters. These patrons are seen as crucial figures, similar to benefactors in Roman society, who supported and protected the nascent Christian communities. The presence of house churches without a unifying authority led to challenges of division and dissension within the broader Christian community. Witherington and Hyatt suggest that the Roman Church's lack of a central organization 
may be due to its organic grassroots development rather than being directly planted by an apostle or developing from local synagogue communities. Indeed, early converts could have been ordinary Jews or God-fearers who encountered the gospel in Jerusalem and disseminated it upon return to Rome. The authors discuss the possibility of individuals like Andronicus or Junior playing a foundational role in establishing Christianity in Rome shortly after Jesus' death. They examine the significance of individuals such as Aristobulus, potentially linked to Herodian royalty, and consider how his household might have included Jewish Christians. Social status within these early Christian circles varied. Many mentioned in Romans 16 were of slave or freed status, yet social economic positioning did not align neatly with juridical status, as some slaves and freed persons could be wealthy. Despite this variation, the majority of Christians likely occupied the lower social strata, akin to the general Jewish population in Rome. Paul's intent, as understood by Witherington and Hyatt, was to establish an egalitarian and inclusive church that recognized leadership regardless of gender or societal status, while utilizing the influence of higher status individuals as hosts and patrons. His strategy for building unity involved reinforcing social connections and shared identities, erasing ethnic divisions between Jewish and Gentile believers. The Roman Christian community was marked by its fluidity, with many members not originally from Rome, contributing to the lack of a robust organizational structure. Paul's efforts aimed to form a community of high group identity by leveraging the Gentile majority to accept and follow the lead of prominent Jewish Christians and to revise existing attitudes towards them. In addition, Witherington III and Hyatt examined the milieu of first-century Rome under Emperor Nero, scrutinizing the condition of Christians and their relationship with the Jewish community. Nero began his reign with promise, abolishing private treason trials and displaying initial clemency, guided by Seneca and Burrus. Yet his rule darkened with the murder of his mother, hinting at his future tyranny and his eventual perception as an antichrist figure by Christians, including John of Patmos. Rome, the epicenter of the vast Roman Empire, was crucial for anyone with a ministry mission like Apostle Paul. The metropolitan city housed a large Jewish populace, despite Emperor Claudius's edict expelling certain Jewish leaders, which did not fully purge Rome of its Jewish residents. The community was diverse, with both wealthy and poor members, and was largely centered in the Trans-Tibetinum district, also home to many Christians. The authors reject the notion postulated by some scholars that early Christians in Rome were simply a sect within Judaism, using evidence from the Acts of the Apostles and other historical texts which depict a clear distinction between Christians and non-Christian Jews. They contend that Christian leaders, such as Priscilla and Aquila, were part of the Jewish expulsion, though Paul's letter to the Romans targeted a predominantly Gentile Christian audience, indicating an independent Christian identity. The Gulio-Claudian dynasty exhibited anti-Semitic tendencies, a sentiment shared by patrician Romans, which likely influenced Claudius's expulsion order, aimed to purify Hellenistic culture from Jewish influences. Yet evidence suggests that Christians had distanced themselves from synagogical Judaism well before Paul's arrival in Rome, with the expulsion in AD 49 perhaps cementing this division. 
In Paul's epistle, he strives to delineate Christianity as an autonomous faith, distinct from both Judaism and Greco-Roman paganism. He pitches an evolved concept of worship, discarding the need for animal sacrifices, temples or priests in favor of a spiritual service embodied through living sacrifices inspired by Christ's atoning act. Paul's personal context, including his rapport with Roman authorities and figures in Corinth, likely influenced his messages in Romans. He encouraged respect for Roman governance and tax obligations, reflecting a harmonious coexistence with Roman oversight earlier in Nero's reign. The understanding of Romans, therefore, requires careful consideration of its historical, social, and rhetorical backdrop to grasp its intended meaning and implications for its first-century audience. Further, Witherington III and Hyatt offer an insightful analysis of the structure and rhetorical devices in Paul's epistle to the Romans, critically assessing various scholarly interpretations. They reference earlier simplistic structures that divide Romans superficially into theological exposition, a diversion and ethical exhortations, but note their inadequacy, particularly in addressing the complexity of chapters 9-11. The authors find merit in Cranfield's framework, which uses Romans 1-17 to illuminate how the text expounds upon being justified by faith, Romans 1-17 to 5-11, and then living out that justification. Romans 5.12-8.39 Cranfield recognizes the overarching theme of the Gospel's inclusivity for both Jews and Gentiles, a significant point due to the tensions between Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. Witherington III and Hyatt debate that Paul's intent is to reconcile these groups, present a unifying Gospel, and garner support for his mission, a prime example of deliberative rhetoric aimed at consensus and advice. They critique Jewett's rhetorical outline for failing to account for the intense engagement with Jewish-Gentile relations in chapters 9-11 and the lengthy ending in Jewett's proposed peroratio. They suggest instead a modified structure that better fits the epistolary nature of Romans, recognizing Paul's strategic rhetoric, known as insinuatio, which gently introduces his most unsettling concerns to build rapport. Much of their analysis challenges the idea of Romans as epideictic rhetoric focused on praise or blame. Instead, they underline that Paul employs deliberative rhetoric aimed at persuading his audience towards specific theological and ethical understandings. Paul's style in Romans is neither flamboyant nor merely ceremonial. It's pragmatic and oriented toward facilitating change in belief and practice. Witherington III and Hyatt dispute that Romans oscillates between arguments grounded heavily in the Old Testament and those with little OT reference, reflecting Paul's dual focus on Jewish and Gentile audiences. They maintain that Romans is a protreptic letter, persuasive discourse within an epistolary format, addressing the Roman Church's divisions and promoting theological unity. The authors propose their own outline of Romans, underscoring Paul's efforts to correct misunderstandings about God's faithfulness to Jews and the imperative of unity among believers in Rome. Thus, the letter seeks to unite believers in their faith in Christ, ultimately concluding with warnings against divisive rhetoric and affirmations of the gospel's message of unity. Last but not least, Witherington III and Darlene examine the Apostle Paul's language choice and his rhetorical expertise along with the dense weave of textual references throughout the letter.
Although Paul was aware that Latin was the language of Rome, he chose Greek to address the largely Gentile cohort, due to Greek being the more universally spoken language at the time, even in the cosmopolitan city of Rome. This choice underscores not just practicality, but also the broader appeal and reach of his message within the empire. In writing, Paul utilizes the common Greek dialect of the period, Koine Greek. Contrary to some expectations, Paul's use of Greek is neither simplistic nor crude, but possesses an eloquence fit for oration. His syntax sometimes includes anakalutha, which may reflect the challenges a scribe faced in transcribing a fluent spoken discourse. Paul's writing style is characterized by features typical of oral traditions, such as diatribes, personification, and other rhetorical devices, emphasizing his letter's intended purpose as an address to be delivered aloud. Likely by Phoebe, a co-worker in Christ, Romans 16, 1. When establishing authority among an audience with whom one has no prior relationship, Paul demonstrates his skill in rhetoric by invoking various sources that carry weight with his audience. This includes established Christian traditions, scripture from the Septuagint, teachings from Jesus, and references to his own earlier preaching. The consistency of his gospel message remains crucial to avoid the perception of pandering or inconsistency in the eyes of his audience. While Romans refrains from direct quotations from Paul's other letters, it echoes themes from them. It is reflective of his teaching and experiences, as seen in the discussion of faith and justification by faith, concepts of freedom from the law in Christ, and the unification of Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. Romans is a repository of the Apostles' thought, strategically repurposing earlier ideas to reiterate the universality and consistency of the gospel he proclaims. Overall, the Epistle to the Romans stands as a sophisticated and tradition-rich document. It weaves together earlier Pauline teachings to underpin the integrity and authoritativeness of his message. The letter functions as a diplomatic push, not just to convey theological truths, but also to garner support and establish a foundation for Paul's future engagement with the Roman believers. In conclusion, Witherington III, alongside Hyatt, contributes a comprehensive socio-rhetorical commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, representing a scholarly endeavor to explore this cornerstone biblical text beyond the traditional and predominantly Reformed interpretations that have shaped its exegesis since the English Reformation. This approach seeks to illuminate the text by challenging certain widely accepted Reformed readings, suggesting that parts of Romans have been misunderstood and urging a reassessment of passages such as Romans 7, which Witherington believes should be read as a use of impersonation, not Paul's autobiography. Besides, they dispute deterministic interpretations of Romans 8.11, advocating instead for a nuanced understanding that accommodates both divine sovereignty and human agency. Additionally, the commentary accentuates that the epistle is not merely a theological abstract, but a specific letter crafted with attention to the context and needs of its original audience, comprising Gentile and Jewish believers in Rome. The authors guide the reader through the complexities of the text's rhetorical structure, urging us to see it as a unified whole where theological discourse is inextricably linked with ethical and practical exhortations, affirming how Paul intended to reconcile divinely revealed truths 
with the lived realities of the early Christian community. Also, Witherington and Hyatt explored the composition and integrity of Romans 16, a subject of considerable scholarly debate. They contend for its authenticity and integration within the larger epistle, based on a careful text-critical examination. They pin the dating of the letter to around 55, 57 AD, during Paul's stay in Corinth, as informed by multiple textual and historical clues, including the mention of Phoebe and Gaius. Further exploring the Roman context, the authors clarify that while the letter addresses a predominantly Gentile audience, it does not exclude Jewish Christians. Their analysis brings to the forefront the importance of recognizing the ethnic diversity and varying backgrounds of early Christians in Rome, a city teeming with a tapestry of cultures, asserting the complexity of the community dynamics. Moreover, through thoughtful structural analysis, the authors highlight that Paul employs deliberative rhetoric to motivate change in understanding and behavior, especially when addressing tensions between Jewish and Gentile Christians. They examine the text's language choice and style to underscore Paul's rhetorical skill and to expand on how the epistle, despite being in Greek, resonates with Paul's established teachings and delivers a theologically profound message intended to unify believers. In essence, Witherington and Hyatt's work invites a re-evaluation of the epistle to the Romans, considering its historical, social, and rhetorical particularities, to understand more fully Paul's intent and the enduring significance of his message for his first-century audience and for readers today.